It's Friday, August 20th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is a special edition of The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On this episode, our focus is the fall of Afghanistan. What happens to the journalists and writers left behind? Why was the pullout so chaotic? What do the events of the past week mean for the future of American leadership on democracy globally? Pen America President Ayad Akhtar talks to journalist and author George Packer, who has documented the Afghan war for two decades. Then, the future of women writers and activists in Afghanistan in the days and weeks ahead. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on the Pen Pod. The fate of Afghanistan, Pulitzer Prize winner and Pen America president Ayad Akhtar takes it from here. With the swift collapse of the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan, Pen America this week called for the protection of writers, artists, journalists, and activists, especially women who now face immense danger. Even before this week's takeover, Taliban militants murdered two members of Penn Afghanistan, underscoring that threat. Joining me now to discuss the recent seismic events in Afghanistan is George Packer, who has been reporting on the conflict since its inception. George, of course, needs no introduction. His writing over the past two decades has been essential to making sense of our country and its role on the global stage. He currently writes for The Atlantic, and he joins me now. George, welcome to the Pen Pod. It's good to be with you, Ayad. So, George, you warned of this kind of catastrophe as early as March of this year, interviewing a number of interpreters who worked with U.S. forces and feared for their lives. You called this week's bungled withdrawal a betrayal. What happens now to all those who served U.S. interests in Afghanistan since 9-11? I mean, it's really uh, a question from hour to hour right now. Um, I spent a good deal of last night tracking uh, one of the interpreters I've written about, who I call Khan, as he and his 34-week pregnant wife and three-year-old son tried to make their way through an enormous crowd at the airport, outside the airport, and were pushed back and beaten and even shot at by Taliban fighters. Um, And uh, I have not been able to confirm exactly where he is, but I think he did get inside the airport finally. I don't know how. Imagine the tens of thousands of others, both those who worked with U.S. government, those who work with American organizations, universities, civil society groups, the human rights activists, the women's activists, uh, the journalists, as you mentioned, and writers, everyone who essentially used the opportunity of the last two decades to try to build a a decent, a better society for themselves and for Afghanistan um, are now uh, under threat and have a, a target on their back. And I don't know how many of them can get out at this stage. Uh, In a way, this is worse than Saigon 75. The administration keeps saying this is not Saigon 75. In a sense, they're right because the evacuation in Saigon happened before the North Vietnamese were in the city. Uh, 135,000 Vietnamese allies of the US were evacuated in the weeks leading up to the fall of Saigon, whereas we are beginning this evacuation after the fall of Kabul with the Taliban in control, which makes things a thousand times more dangerous. So it it really depends on us, our will, our willingness to stay there for a few weeks, to beef up the troop presence beyond the current several thousand, and to Um, secure not just the airport itself, but the streets around the airport so people can get in without facing 
Taliban thugs and unruly mobs, and even uh, begin efforts to get Afghans from other parts of the country who are not in Kabul and somehow airlift them either out of those areas or, or get them to Kabul if they're nearby. It's a massive, dangerous, unprecedented um, undertaking. But we have put ourselves in this position of failing our Afghan friends because we, uh, we waited until it was too late. Why, why did we wait that long? I mean, what is, what's the reason, if there is one, for this debacle? I mean, governments always suffer from um, groupthink, from self-deception, from um, not thinking through the worst case scenario, not planning for it. And that seems to have happened in this case. President Biden said they plan for every contingency. That's blatantly false and it's belied by what's happening right now in Kabul. Um, but I think the final reason why they didn't plan for the worst case and begin evacuations as early as March or April or May, um, as many people, including me, were calling for, is because Biden didn't want to. Biden didn't want this responsibility. He didn't think it was in our national interest. He wanted, he was focused on the troop withdrawal, on ending the war. That was the thing that he cared about. And the fate of the Afghans uh, was of secondary importance to him. And that message became policy. It, you know, there, there, there are people in the administration I know of who were pushing hard for a more um, aggressive and, and you know, forward-looking approach. But they couldn't get it done if the man at the top was not willing to to risk something for it. And I think that was the case. And Biden has a history of wanting essentially to wash his hands. At the end of the Vietnam War, he refused to say we should let in any Vietnamese refugees in 2010, according to Richard Holbrook's diary, uh, which I quote in my book, Our Man, he told Holbrook, uh, we're not in, in that war for women's rights and we can get out and get away with it. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it in Vietnam. So I think that informs his thinking, and that's why, uh, regardless of the best intentions of people working for him, uh, we have ended up in this in this terrible position. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about Biden uh, that way. It, you know, I was so um, formed by my reading of the Unwinding uh, when it came out, and and of course, a good part of the Unwinding is is a kind of indirect portrait of, of of Biden. And, you know, there's a fellow who's working for Biden and is disillusioned by Biden. And I often find myself looking for the 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 character in your book um, in in the president that we have today. And of course, it, there seems to be a clear there's a clear through line uh, in this this decision and the way that it's unfolded. You um, know, I, I got to say, I have good feelings about Biden on many counts. In fact, just like two days before I was accusing him of betraying uh, Afghans, I published uh, an essay that no one read because of what happened in Afghanistan, saying he is bringing us closer to being a truly egalitarian country because his domestic policies, I think, are, are pretty visionary. But this is a, a real failure and, and maybe a character flaw in him. And he seems to be digging in and that too may be a character flaw. Instead of recognizing his error and trying to make up for it, uh, there's a grudging attitude. His speech on 
Monday uh, to the country, put all the blame on the Afghans and essentially said, you're on your own. We've tried. Uh, we're, we're out of here. To quote a, another of your books or to quote you, uh, your writing in Our Man, which is about the late American diplomat Richard Holbrook, uh, you write, the best about us was inseparable from the worst. Our feeling that we could do anything gave us the Marshall Plan in Vietnam, the peace at Dayton and the endless Af- Afghan war. Our confidence and energy, our reach and grasp, our excess and blindness. I sort of wonder, we sort of, with that in mind, what the future of America's role on the world stage is, given what we're seeing. I mean, is this an important moment for, uh, does it mark some sort of end of a period, if you will? I think it does. I think it's a crucial moment. It's very hard to be sure because we're in the middle of it. Um, And, you know, the fall of Saigon set off a cascade of, of doom prophecies um, in 1975 and 76 and uh, a sense that the United States was finished as a world power. And that turned out to be far from true. In fact, the zenith of our power still lay ahead with the end of the Cold War. Um, I think of Vietnam more as a disastrous um, detour of the Cold War rather than a final chapter. Whereas Afghanistan is a kind of final chapter. I think it's been coming for a long time, maybe since September 11th, 2001, 20 years ago, with two unwinnable wars uh, that cost us a great deal and cost those countries much more. The financial crisis and the Great Recession. Um, the the disappointment among many Americans in the Obama presidency and then the real horror of the Trump presidency. Countries don't come back from 20 years of failure like that. And I think the public is so skeptical now of anyone in power. Um, And the world is so jaded and astonished at our um, self-destruction including during the pandemic, let's not forget that as a big failure, that I don't think we will ever be the same. Um, I mean, we're big, we're rich, we're powerful, we have by far the biggest military, but if Biden wanted to bring America back as a leader of democracies, this is a disastrous start. This will have the opposite effect. So I just want to ask you a final question, which is pivoting away from, from what's going on right now. And it's a question for me as president of PEN America. I'm curious at a time when freedom of expression as a core value of our national life has become increasingly politicized, what your thoughts about its importance are. I think it's more important than ever. I think Penn is more important than ever as uh, free, free expression and democracy itself are under threat at home and all around the world. And Penn does a unique and an indispensable job in standing up for Afghan writers, for Burmese writers, for people around the world who are going to be forgotten uh, by, the, by the great powers and by the rush of daily events. I have some reservations about Penn's uh, willingness to stand up for free expression here in the United States, regardless of partisan advantage. I think Penn has focused rightly on threats to freedom under President Trump and from 
uh, his most extreme followers and the right-wing media. But I think there's many, many threats to freedom of expression on the left these days. It's not coming so much from political power as it is from the culture, um, from media, from universities, from NGOs. For example, many universities now, including public ones, um, have policies and practices on what they call DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which really can amount to ideological vetting of potential job candidates and of professors who run afoul of some of their students. Um, and those are th threats to freedom of thought um, that are just as pervasive and serious as threats coming um, from the right. They are not um, and Penn is not as vocal and visible in calling out and denouncing those threats as it is, and rightly, on, for example, state laws that ban the teaching of anti-racist ideas, the history of slavery, etc. So I would like to see Penn um, call out these threats no matter where they come from and which side they appear to advantage or disadvantage and in under what name they come, even if that name is justice, um, because it will lose its authority if it's not willing to look these threats in the eye, no matter where they come from. It's, it strikes me just as a, as a brief response to, to, to what you just said, that in this environment that we're in, there is a, there is a changing, um, there's a changing tenor and cast to the moral imagination. And I think that there's increasingly a sense that perhaps freedom of expression, unfettered freedom of expression, freedom of thought is less important than making sure that we're having uh, the right kinds of thoughts to move the right kinds of conversations and the right kinds of policy. And so in a way, I think one of the challenges for Penn Ahead and certainly under, under my tenure is to figure out how we continue to make the argument that you are espousing, but now in terms that... Um, that meet this, this, this new preoccupation with a value that seems to be more important than freedom of thought. Right, I think the value you're talking about may be um, inclusion, maybe another word for it, or I don't know if that's exactly what you mean. Yeah, but probably. Yeah, an atmosphere in which people feel as if they have the freedom and the power to speak, and people who belong to groups or come from um, legacies that have historically not had that freedom and that power. And that's a huge movement right now in our culture and our society and a really important one. But it must never become a way of restricting um, who is, can say what and get away with it without having to suffer personal and professional consequences, you know, that are devastating. That's, that's sort of where I draw the line. Of course, we're going to attack each other. We're going to ridicule each other. Um, we're going to denounce each other when we hear things that we don't like and, and that might threaten that, that atmosphere. But to try to shut it down by destroying each other, um, especially when it happens uh, sort of through a crowd, through a, a uh, an instant crowd is is a really dangerous um, and kind of in some ways new, I guess it's very old, but also some, somehow new with our social media platforms, 
threat to free expression. It isn't the classic, you know, censorship or um, government um, threats to books and to speakers, but it is um, in some ways just as dangerous because it's, it's, it's got moral power and, and it inspires more fear in people in this country than the government does for most Americans, I would say. And so in a way, the standard that we would apply to Uzbekistan um, or Saudi Arabia, which is mainly about threats from state power, has to be enlarged uh, if we're going to be truly advocates for, for freedom of expression. We've been speaking with George Packer. Thank you, George. My pleasure, Ayat. George Packer has won the National Book Award and been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. In addition to his nonfiction work, he's also the author of two novels and a play. He writes, as I said, for The Atlantic. Thank you for joining us. Read a transcript of this conversation and explore more of George Packer's reporting on our website, pen.org. Finally, what happens to women leaders and writers in Afghanistan? Over at Penn.org, we have a conversation with Afghan-American novelist and pediatrician Nadia Hashimi. She's channeled the hardships of Afghanistan, and in particular Afghan women, through her novels that together trace a century of the country's tumultuous history. In our interview, she talks about the unclear future for Afghanistan's women, the uncertain promises of Taliban leadership, the misleading narratives about the country, and how reading and recentering Afghan authors and voices can help change the narrative. You can read that interview on our website, pen.org. That's where you can also take action. We make it simple for you to write to your members of Congress and ask them to put pressure on the White House to safeguard Afghanistan's writers, journalists, artists, and free expression advocates. And that's it for this episode of The Pen Pod on Friday, August 20th. Join us next week for The Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is The Pen Pod. See you soon.